Good evening, folks, and a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We have a wonderful evening's entertainment lined up for you, one that will provide several hours of pleasurable relaxation and diversion for you and your family. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dead City Drive-In, the only podcast willing to give up life on the farm for a little bit of Tinseltown sleaze and stardom. I'm Brandon Windish. And I'm Chris Holcomb. And we are the heads of programming in this here Dead City. And in this episode, decreed by the higher-ups, our bosses, the drive-in gods, we have been tasked once again to program a specially themed double bill for the ravenous hordes of mutants and madmen outside our projection room door. So, Chris, my question is, have you ever, have you ever, like, ambled away from home to seek, I don't know, fame, fortune, and fornication? No. No? You've never had one of those, like, long journeys where you've just trekked across the open plains and tried to figure out what it all means and maybe hitchhike your way and... No. Huh. Well, <laughs> there it goes, of ten course. minutes. No. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> I'm supposed to say yes and, right? No, no. It's like, <laughs> not if you haven't. Not if you haven't. Uh, I don't know. I, I kind of went on a vision quest once. Ooh. With a head full of acid. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I did it a few times. In a denim vest, vision quest, watching Falcon Crest. Wow. You were there. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, there have been times that I've kind of gone out to just seek uh, what may lie beyond. Sometimes at three o'clock in the morning, walking down the center line of a major thoroughfare. <laughs> like going to checkers. My friend's going, you need to come back here, dude. If the cops come, we're fucked. <laughs> I, did a, I did a journey um, to, to Los Angeles mm -hmm. and to go live and work in L.A. for a while. <laughs> And it was kind of a it was it was pretty surreal. Um, I literally went there with uh, my backpack, or not like a, a suitcase, one suitcase, mm -hmm. and my cat in another box, like a cat box. And I got dropped off by a taxi on Hollywood Boulevard, waiting for my friend to come pick me up after he got done from work. That was like my so I brought my suitcase and my cat and we went into some bar on hollywood boulevard where i was just killing some time and there were just the saddest looking people ever just hanging out there and sidled up to the bar and like have my cat, <laughs> my cat with me <laughs> i order a drink and there's a guy who's looking at me and he, and he looks so depressed and he's like hey what do you do and i said oh well uh I'm a I'm a writer, and he goes, Jew, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, and I went, well, no, and he goes, oh, don't ever, don't ever, ever tell anybody. You want some advice? Don't ever tell anybody that you're not a Jew in this business. And I was like, oh, dude, okay, well, can I buy you a drink? I mean, you don't look like you need one, but you seem really sad. Anyway, Here, I I'll do you a favor and give you a, a circumcision so nobody knows. I got my portable bris station <laughs> with me. So, But this guy, he just like looks so sad. And this is what was 
and the whole bar, he was no different looking than any of the other people in this bar. It just looked like the sleaziest, saddest bar of all time. But I talked to the guy, I ended up, because I was stuck there talking to this guy for however long, at the time I was ready to leave, he goes, he looks at me, he's like, let me tell you something. Tonight was the night I was going to kill myself. And I'm like, what? Jesus, dude. Like, okay. okay." And he goes, but I like you, and I don't think I want to do it no more. And I'm like, Okay, I like I didn't know. No, no, come on, no, no. Oh, come I, on, dude, that's I, amazing. I you did, saved this man's life. I don't know. It was weird, but all I could think of, I was like out doing that. So I'm like, okay, it's a surreal experience. I'm from Florida, and well, I guess that's pretty weird too. So. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I come from America's dick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but my friend finally picks me up, and he was like, "Where the fuck have you been?" I was like, "I was in this bar." He's like, "What were you doing in that bar? That's like the nastiest, grossest, worst bar in town." And I'm like. I am in for a treat out here in L.A. I really didn't know what I was getting into. Um, or what gets into you. That's also very, yes. very true. But, it, you know, the feeling of being in a weird new alien environment and being kind of lost in, like, a town that's bigger than you will probably ever be, that has more history and and, and beauty and yet sadness and sleaze, has never been lost on me and it's just i just remember that while it was like the most overcrowded city i've ever lived in it was also the loneliest place i've ever been and i'll i will always have that memory with me of la knowing that i couldn't really live there anymore at so a is that a point. good thing a bad thing an indifferent it's a little, thing it's a little bit of both i mean i i like there are things that I miss about LA, mostly the weather. <laughs> there are things that I wish I could have done differently with lessons that I had learned a little bit differently. Maybe if I had had a taken a different approach to things, it would have been that. But ultimately, um, I feel like I made the right decisions and came back here and had a different kind of career. And it's worked out really well. That means a lot to me, Brandon. Aw, Chris. Thank you for coming home. <laughs> it was all for you. Yeah, I know it was. I know it was. Alrighty, well, <clears throat> it's about time that we uh, introduce our guest programmer for this evening. Hey, let's do it. <laughs> Absolutely. So our guest programmer is an author and blogger whose love and appreciation for vintage horror paperbacks of the 60s, 70s, and 80s eventually gave way to his virtual museum, Too Much Horror Fiction, a blog dedicated to collecting and reviewing the best and worst that the genre has to offer. Along with Grady Hendrix, he co-wrote the Bram Stoker award-winning book, Paperbacks from Hell, the Twisted History of 1970s and 1980s Horror Fiction. He's joined forces with Valancourt Books to bring you the very best of out-of-print vintage horror, including Lisa Tuttle's A Nest of Nightmares and Carnosaur. <laughs> he knows that the quickest way to a horror nerd's heart is an illustration of a skeleton doing pretty much anything. His paperback library is growing larger as we speak. Welcome to the drive-in, Mr. Will Erickson. Hey, guys. Hey, man. Happy to be here. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Will, have you ever gone ambling? <laughs> uh, well, I suppose uh, I suppose I have. Uh, so I, I, uh, about eight years ago, I left uh, the East Coast and drove across the country and relocated to Portland, Oregon. So, uh, I suppose, I suppose that's as close as I've ever come to Amblin. What made you do it? Uh, my wife and I had lived in, uh, Raleigh for, you know, I went to school there. I went to college there 
for for decades. You know, I was there for about twenty years, and we were both just ready for a bigger adventure. Uh, uh, we had sort of living in, in town for that long. It was sort of like uh, everybody there knew me, like uh, and, and knew uh, uh, like the people you grow up with and they never let you forget about that time in first grade that you peed in class. <laughs> right. You know, that yeah. kind of thing. But yeah. now you're, now you're 40 years old and you're like, I can't be around. I can't do this anymore. I have to be around where people don't know me. My wife sort of like, she was the, the instigator of, of the move and, and felt that like our time there was done and she was absolutely right. So, and you so, moved yeah, to Oregon love, living in Portland. You moved to Oregon cause you've always wanted to be a Goonie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Goonies never well, say we, die. <laughs> yeah, we went to, to Astoria the first time we visited Oregon and, and we're driving in. My wife didn't tell me and I'm like, this looks so much like Goonies. And then we come into the city and I'm like, wait, this this is Goonies. Like, this is Goonies. <laughs> There's chunk. Yeah, it was it was a nice little surprise. That's awesome. Well, let me ask you this. What is your relationship with horror? I mean, obviously we know a few things mm-hmm. here, but how, how about you in horror and, and or, or the genre, you know, yeah. exploitation, you know, all mm-hmm. of that. What's your, yeah, how what's did your... you get introduced to this? Um, uh, let me think. Uh, I mean, as long as I've been around, I remember being, you know, a little kid and looking in the TV guide for what, uh, you know, the Belagosi Dracula or the Bars Karloff Frankenstein and looking to see when those movies were going, uh, going to be on. Cause this was in the mid seventies. Um, and then uh, uh, Jaws came out and Alien and, uh, you know, it was a kid like, you know, you guys probably had, you know, similar experience. You, this stuff gets in there early. My mom encouraged me, uh, you know, to read. We always had visits to the library and, and uh, you know, I could read whatever I wanted. And then in the early 80s, she started working in the library and she would bring home. I remember her bringing home like the, those Lovecraft paperbacks with Michael Whelan cover art. Or um, I remember seeing like some of the early Stephen King books and just you know went from there so it's it's always been you know part of me it's interesting because i think all three of us are are pretty voracious readers and i i I don't really know about you chris but i know for me like my mom read to me at a very young age yeah yeah um is it did i is it true that you're I feel like I read an interview or something where mm-hmm. you mentioned your mom read Dracula to you out loud. Is that true? Yeah, that was something I remember um, uh, checking Dracula out of the library and reading the early parts, you know, in Dracula's castle, you know, sort of reading back back and forth and me trying, you know, trying to read out loud, you know, it was a little beyond me, but yeah, I, I was, I was into, you know, like, Gotta gotta read the book. Can't just be the movie. Gotta read the book. Yeah. I, I just uh, from, I've always thought that it was so beginning. important for a parent to read to their yeah. child. I think it's did your mom did your parents read to you or yeah. did you discover kind of books on your own or Yeah, no, my my parents read to me. You know, both of my parents are not really heavy readers. Um, but my mom as a kid, you know, had some very interesting like children's books that like I think she had when she was a kid. Her mom was a teacher. Um <clears throat> there was one, I guess the child's book of Shakespeare. 
oh, which shit. was this awesome, you know, book about this big red cover, these great illustrations. And while the whole thing wasn't in verse, uh, they were basically the plot lines to Shakespeare's plays and kind of done in a, in a way that a kid could understand. So I was familiar with Shakespeare. You know, that would be kind of like a request, though. Can we do the Shakespeare book? <laughs> you know, so from from very early on, you know, that's where my, my love of Macbeth, which is like my favorite piece of theater, period. You know, and I'm I'm a theater guy. You know, went to college for theater. You know, was part of a theater company for almost twenty something years, um, and hands down, you know, Macbeth is my favorite play and is just my favorite bit of theater, period. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it all stems back to this story that my mother read me mm-hmm. when I was a kid. Um, but from there on, I I you know, from a pretty early age was pretty crazy about books, probably yeah. like second or third grade. And at that point, you know, I'd come home, I think, you know, the, the max number of books that you could check out at the library mm-hmm. was like 10. Yeah. So mm-hmm. every time that I'd go every week to the library, I'd have a stack of 10 books that I'd be carrying home. Um, and you know, times when I'd get sick and everything and make sure that I had reading material. So <laughs> I'm, I'm sick, which sucks, but at the same time, it's kind of fucking awesome because I can sit here yeah. in bed and it's like, I, I remember probably 1986 or 1987, I read like the entire Chronicles of Narnia, like in, in one bedridden <laughs> week. <laughs> so, you know, that kind of stuff. That's yeah, great. It's, uh, that's it's, great. I remember my, I, I, I got into Stephen King really young. And I would bring um, those books to school with me, like. Yeah. And I remember my uh, teachers would get so angry. They, they yeah. like, they didn't like because I would leave it out on the desk. And I had one teacher uh, that. Um, how how did this work? I feel like I was. Oh, I think I was like a teacher's aide to him, and mm-hmm. he was like a kind of a, a religious man. He uh, he he was a, he was a Christian man, but he. <laughs> I re- I re- always remember observing this. I was sitting I was sitting like at his desk and he had a Bible on his desk. And then I'm kind of like OCD and even at a young age I like I like to make things like neat on corners of things and organize, you know, well, like mm. right angles line up and whatnot. Uh, I'm insane. And I uh but I so I put my copy of it, the paperback copy, which is, you know, sure. thicker than the yeah. Bible. <laughs> And I remember just to clean up that area, I set it on top of his Bible. And I remember he didn't, it, <laughs> but I, no, I remember he never, he never acknowledged, he never said anything. He just very quietly, calmly picked the book up yeah. off the Bible and set it on the other side of the desk across from it. And I'm like, it's not going to. It's not yeah. going to affect it. Don't worry. It's just a fucking <laughs> book. <laughs> the yeah. book is sour. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, lightning question. Mm. What's your favorite paperback cover? Uh, favorite pa- paperback cover is probably, uh, I'm going to say, um, Gwen and Green, uh, uh, an eco horror novel from the early 70s uh, by Hugh Zachary that was reprinted uh, by Valancourt. And I did the introduction for it. It's uh, it's by an artist named George Zeal. It's this lovely green swamp woman who sort of looks hypnotized by the swamp, uh, which is basically what the story is about. It's it's, it's one of the, the good ones where the cover accurately 
uh, is an accurate depiction of what happens within the story, both the character and the vibe of the book. Don't you love it when which, that happens? Like, like Cold Moon Over Babylon has that. Yes, Cold Moon Over Babylon is excellent because as I was reading it, I realized I was like, wait, this is this is the cover, this scene, you know? Yeah. This is, I was like, oh, I love that. And it really, a lot of times artists didn't have any time to paint this stuff. They didn't have any time to, to read the book. They just got the synopsis from the publisher. But you can tell when the artist read the book or got a good chapter. And you can tell when they didn't, like, do claws. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Is... Most, of, most of the zebras, uh, yeah, there's, <sighs> there, there are some that match up, but a lot do not. Do claws is, the cover of do claws is a skeleton wearing a red hat backwards playing a banjo. <laughs> it has nothing to do with a do claw, but. Well, I'm I'm going to admit right now I am totally out of my depth when it comes to like horror paperbacks. Yeah, because a... <laughs> growing up, like horror fiction, like was forbidden in my house. Like I could yeah. I could I could read Poe and I could read Lovecraft because you know mm-hmm. that was literature. But Stephen <laughs> King, oh my God, my my mother detests Stephen King to this day. And I can remember the yeah. first Stephen King book that I got from a babysitter, and it was it was a you know it actually was the, I think it was. Was it The Stand? I think it might have been The Stand. So I'm reading this, and I'm 11, 12 years old and everything, and my mom found it. And, you know, the dust jacket had been taken off because we thought that'd be mm-hmm. kind of clever, but she noticed <laughs> the book and picked it up and was like, Stephen King? Go march this down the street to your babysitter and give it back, which, you know, I pretended that I did that and later on got it back yeah. and wound up reading the whole book, you know, yeah. later on. But, no. like, I had to sneak that kind of stuff. In, in... Now you read that racist, <laughs> xenophobe HP Lovecraft, and, or you're grounded. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Hey, I mom, love... do you know what his cat's name is? <laughs> <laughs> well, all of this is really fascinating because when we asked you to guess program, you picked. Something is as far as I just totally left field. Like the last thing yeah. I would have expected you to pick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Will, yeah. what did you pick for our our guest programming? Uh, I picked um, Nashville Girl. girl at 16 jamie grabbed her guitar ran away from home thinking all you need's a good voice and talent nashville taught her different the story of her climb to the top and the price she pays to get there i'm going to nashville how old are you i'm 19 sure and i'm 120 so what's in nashville did you see that guitar she's gonna be the next tanya tucker ain't she I don't know about you. No, get me out. You gotta let me out. There are only two things I'm sure of. I can't go home again. And more than anything, I want to make it in this town. How old are you? I'll be 17 next week. Oh, my God. Get out of bed, get dressed, and get out of here. Now, hurry up. Jesus Christ. If anybody knows that I screwed a 16-year-old... You're going to work for me, and you're going to fuck me until I tell you you're finished. Become what the public thinks I am. You mean you want your virginity back? Melody Mason. Underage in the undergrowth of the country music jungle, she reached the top, but she paid the price with her body. To make it in the music business, she had to make it with the music business. Nashville Girl. Uh, yeah, 1976. Uh, 
sort of it's it, it's a what they called exploitation okay. kind of a drive-in movie uh, to appeal to you know uh, viewers in moviegoers in the South you know and it's about a girl who leaves her small southern town to go to Nashville and become a country singer um, and this is before uh, the uh, uh, coal miner's daughter movie. Um, which I suppose has a little similarity, although it's it, it's not based on any real country singer. It's just about a girl chasing her country music dreams. And it, it, you think it's going to be like a sleazy kind of exploitation, TNA kind of movie. Um, and it has slight elements here and there, but it's really kind of a sweet, really well-made, you know, uh, kind of gem, I think. So let's talk about some of these people here. Who, who's involved in yeah. this? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you've got Gus uh, Traconis, uh, who I was not familiar with, and then I looked him up, and he had done a, a horror movie after National Guard called The Evil with Richard Crenna, which yeah. I ra- randomly watched a year or two ago. Um, wasn't very good, sort of a haunted house kind of thing, but it was just an interesting uh, connection. Um, and I think was he? I think I read that he was married to. Goldie Hawn? He was. And he was also a dancer in West Side Story. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he was um, in front of and and behind the camera. Yeah. Yeah. And he went on to have a pretty solid um, journeyman director career. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of television stuff. Yeah. Um, And then we have a writer that I've never heard of before. Yeah. I look at these names and I just, that's another thing about the movie that's that's, uh, unique is it, it connects to very little a few other things that that uh that i know about although the guy did have a career but as far as the writer i'm not really familiar yeah pierre j oppenheimer mm-hmm. never heard of him yeah, yeah no. he made the atomic bomb right he, yeah. probably, <laughs> he probably had something to do with it <laughs> no that was robert oppenheimer and then who's in this movie again this is the, the movie is full of people that i never never heard of yeah so monica gale is the lead and she plays the teenage uh girl who leaves home um and she's adorable she is very naturalistic she was in switchblade sisters yeah. and she had sort of a small sort of exploitation career did some uh, uh girly mag covers and stuff like that and then disappeared you know vanished um, just vanished just retired from acting i think by the early 80s she's maybe a slight young sissy spacex vibe to her or something but she's really cute and really just like a, um, she carries the movie, you know, for, for, for someone that that's the thing that appealed to me about the movie is that like, I didn't know anything about any of these people involved with it. And it's just so like uh, <laughs> more than competent, you know, so many of the exploitation movies and horror movies. Yeah. Vintage years are just, they're so, they're, they're just incompetent, you know, long stretches of nothing happening, terrible acting, you know, terrible. And this movie is just like, it's just a human story it's just about people and it, you don't really expect that going into it yeah it was pretty solid that was one thing i was because i had not seen the movie i had heard of it i used to work at a video mm-hmm. store so it's like cover boxes are like something that just permanently you know, burned into my head um, yeah not this one right yeah well, so i mean never well well do, do me a favor real quick and, and can you mm-hmm. read this letterboxed synopsis for us yeah for the people oh, yeah. who yeah. probably like us have no fucking idea what this movie <laughs> yeah, is <let's... laughs> Uh, a Kentucky-born maiden realizes her dream of becoming a country music star. However, she discovers that her single-minded determination has caused her to lose, lose things far more precious than fame or money when she gets involved with a group of corrupt music executives. Yeah. 
that's that's kind that's yeah that's kind of executives and 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 a corrupt country singer you know she meets her her country uh music idol uh later in the movie and by glenn corbett yeah and who's glenn corbett dude i like he looks so first of all that dude I think he's great too, Glenn Corbett as yeah. uh, what is it, Je- Jeb? Yeah, Jeb, Jed Hubbard. Hub- yeah, is that, is that what it is? Jed Hubbard. Yeah, I think it was something like that. I, I forget too, but like he, I thought he was great. Well, I yeah. know him because he's the original Zephram Cochran on Star Trek. No shit. <clears throat> so he's the inventor of warp drive. Oh my yes, God, he really? was in a Star Trek episode called Metamorphosis, and he played the inventor of warp drive that at some point in his life got tired of you know being on earth and he's then, the original james cromwell yes exactly <laughs> he is the original james cromwell that's as far as i'm my... trying to think of, there was other stuff that did um i feel like he was, was on the tv show no he was on um route 66 i think okay yeah all right okay and then the, the actress uh that plays that country singer's wife who you meet at the towards the closer to the end of the movie uh, uh, she sort of is his manager. She's played by Judith Roberts, who I didn't know, and I look her up, and she's in. She was in Eraserhead, and okay. she was also she's still acting today. And she was just on most recently Orange Is the New Black as one of the old, one of the old prisoners. You know, one of yeah. the old time. She has um the vibe of uh, what's the woman from Night of the Living Dead, Chris, that plays the wife of Harry. Marilyn Eastman. Marilyn Sorry. Eastman. Yeah, it took me a second. She's yeah. got like a Marilyn Eastman vibe, where she's just so, like this beleaguered. You know, woman married to this loudmouth bloviator. (laughs) That's a that's a good comparison. Yeah, she has that attitude. She has that kind of just exhausted. Like, well, yeah, here we are. (laughs) But dude, I'm with you because I really was expecting. Is this is a? There's not a whole lot of information about this movie though. It's a a a New World Pictures uh, distributed film. But I'm not a hundred percent sure if Corman had anything to do with financing it. I'm the only thing I remember, like really hearing Corman talk about, is that he said he was very, very surprised at how well this movie did in Europe. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, go wrong. But I'm not. Yeah. So I'm not sure if it was like a movie that you know he he bought and then just distributed, or if he paid for. I'm, I feel I, like his name would be more prominent. In the you know the credits, if he had something to do, well, he usually didn't. He didn't no? really do it on a lot of movies. Like uh, you, I mean, just when he was producing. I mean, when he was directing and everything, yeah. But yeah, but like you producer. don't see for you know you don't see Roger Corman's name on uh, Slumber Party Massacre. Like it doesn't say to, okay. his name on there. So it's like it said his production company, and it's almost kind of a smart move, right? Because if you start to associate a guy with like not good stuff. <laughs> You're not really doing. You're going to only hurt yeah. yourself. So I think he was yeah. pretty smart about not putting his name on things, so that he could just okay. make money on the drive-in circuit. You know. Um, but that, that's the thing. So it's it's a, regardless, it's a Roger Corman film, yeah. in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. And I was legitimately expecting a sleaze fest in in some way. And it's mm-hmm. interesting because just like you said, well, like it it is sleazy. But yeah. it's so sincere. It's not like it's it hits the exploitation marks. Like eight minutes into the movie, it's a rape. <laughs> we've got a rape scene. You know, like mm-hmm. and, and there's nudity, full frontal nudity, and and so women in women in prison. Yeah, yeah. And the, 
and the, the and the lesbian guard who starts to you know is going to abuse her and so and, yeah, and the lesbian just, guard is the one that gets fired. Yeah, he goes. You know what? She You've gets, raped enough women in this prison. You're fired. I think that the the, the politics of the movie that was the other thing. It w- w- was were very uh, current. I thought there was no no sense of uh, a lot of people in the movie that their jobs are all very competent. Yeah. You know, there, there's definitely there's corruption, but there are pe- there are people who are competent and help uh, uh, Jamie along her uh, adventure, which I well, thought her was sense of so, self-worth, I think, was the other thing that was really kind of that yeah. stood out in that is that, you know, these things happen to her, but she does have the wherewithal to say, no, I'm better than this. And then as she kind of gets a little bit further drawn into the world of you know country music recording and, and and everything, she has to start making active choices on where am I going to compromise because I know that you know mm-hmm. I've been around long enough now and been through so many you know I, I kind of even said that this is not I don't know if it's the hero's journey or if it's the hero's <laughs> gauntlet that she has to go through because right. she she does run the gauntlet on this and she gets the shit beat out of her yeah you know, physically emotionally literally sexually. and figuratively yeah but you know there are moments where she does have enough agency through the entire thing to say I'm going to make an active choice I know that in order to get to the next level I'm going to probably have to sleep with this guy mm-hmm. and she has a great moment like maybe three quarters of the way through where she like when somebody kind of says to her, like I gave you all of this and you deserve, I deserve you basically. And Mm -hmm. she very is very quick to point out, you know, where she's just like, no, no, no. Everything that I've done, I have done with my integrity intact. Mm -hmm. Like, and I, I've already paid my dues long before I came across th- you. Yeah, yeah. and That's I thought right. that was so progressive and powerful and exciting. And I was like, it, for, for a movie of this caliber that does, again, it fits the exploitation bill because there's nudity. There's a lot of nudity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Southern and, retribution. <laughs> yep, all of that's in there. And yet it doesn't, it doesn't feel crass It doesn't to feel me. cheap or yeah. trashy. Yeah. You don't feel dirty for watching it. I mean, you feel like there's pathos there where you actually feel for the character and the shit that she's experiencing and everything. But never at any point do you feel like, oh, God, this is just grody. It's like, I feel Mm -hmm. so bad for her. (laughs) Yeah, I Mm -hmm. I was surprised. And God damn, how many songs are in this movie, Will? How many songs do you think? (laughs) Uh, A dozen at I least mean, and they're decent there are good country songs i'm not a big country yeah. uh and western fan i know that those are the only two types of music that exist country and western but <laughs> right i'm that said i really enjoyed that aspect of the movie i mean yeah we we start and by the way spoiler alert all three of these movies start and end with a country song <laughs> That was something that I the, the kind ding of dang do. Yeah, they all they all start with a ding dang and end with a do. <laughs> um, but the music is prominent. I mean, this is a musical. Almost, yeah, yeah. It's that that era of the sort of pop con- pop country. You know, they they mentioned you know Tammy Wynette um, and, and somebody like that, and uh, you know she sort of has a Juice Newton kind of kind of sound. Just that w- w- when it's uh, it seems like it has a mass appeal. You know, um, I think uh, it captures that era pretty well, I think. So wh- where did you see this movie, man? Um, it's uh, I just found it uh, streaming. Um, I believe I heard about it first. I was trying to think about where I heard about it. And I'm pretty sure there's a there's a blog called Every 70s Movie. 
And it is literally that. And for like the last 10 or 12 years, this guy has been watching every 70s movie that he can track down. And I've just been following him for years. And uh, I think I read it there and he gave it like the same kind of thing. Like you, you're expecting exploitation. You're expecting, you know, this, this trashy movie, a drive-in movie, and it's not. It's a great human story. And this guy's usually right. So I went and checked and I just found it streaming. And uh, I was like, yeah, this is terrific. And, and it was just, you know, a delight to watch, you know, I was like, oh, I'll just sort of put it on and see how it is. And suddenly you're sucked into this story and, and, and you're waiting for like something, some terrible acting or something dumb to happen. And it just, it all just moves along at this pace. And it's just got this great seventies look too, which, which I really like. You star know, filters these, everywhere. Yeah. 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 Love it. Love yeah. the star filters. Yep. And uh, yeah. So I'm glad that it's, it's still streaming because when I suggested the movie and you hadn't, you weren't familiar with it, I was like, Oh, I hope it's still streaming. I hope it's still available um, because that happens. Yeah. They disappear. Yeah. We were pretty lucky in that all three of our movies that we picked are usually not super easy to find. And, and this right. time for, and they were all in the same place. They too. were all in the same place. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty, I was pretty surprised by that. Um, and, uh, the, you know, okay. So there's a moment in this movie that I thought like that is when I started really getting on board with it. Um, mm-hmm. I love it when actors – like, okay, the thing about Monica Gale is I don't know that she's, like, a great actress, right? Like, I'm not going to say that she is somebody who probably studies and mm-hmm. – not that that is the definition of a great actor by any stretch of the imagination. But there, she has some pretty um, – questionable line deliveries especially the earlier parts of the film Mm -hmm. but there was a moment where she reacted to something and it's like the second or third time she goes to some music executive and the secretary lets her in she immediately walks in and she it's like like the old joke cut of like you go in actually they do another one like something like that in my pick too but like she turns around and she's screaming like from behind the door, fuck you to the executive. And she comes out and she looks, she's screaming, fuck you. And she looks at the secretary and she goes, fuck you. And then she just like runs down the hall and just starts saying, fuck you to like everybody in the hall. And it's like such an explosive thing that watching it, I was like, I don't know. I'm not entirely certain that it was scripted that she, screams that at everybody in the room like like there's a stage hand in that other room and he sticks a pinky in her ass and it's just a <laughs> does a something to, yeah, to hey, get what her the, what the fuck is it? i just recording. the keep, way that she rolling. does it to like the the secretary the woman she's just like you're culpable of this like how dare you and then yes. like fuck you fuck you fuck you you're cool <laughs> fuck you i'm out it, 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 yeah it's it's so funny you mentioned that because that is literally the scene that jumped out at me that was like I was like oh no this movie is got something going on yeah and, and again this is very relevant to today and when she comes out she screams fuck you at that secretary in her face yes. like you know what's happening in there yeah you were culpable you're complicit in this and I was like man. Yeah, you, you you couldn't get more relevant to today. Mm-hmm. It was it was just it's like here's where this you know little nothing movie like that's why it's so great to go back and revisit these forgotten little nuggets. Man, they just got have gold in them. I mean, yes, and that scene it's is so great. Funny you say that scene. Oh, and well, man. what's really fascinating too is like I, that that was when I went down this path because again I'm still I'm so like Corman trained. 
that I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm going like something's going to happen because I don't, I had no idea what goes on in this movie. So there's a part of me that that thinks like we're going to start getting into some dark shit here, and I thought right. for sure, and, and it does get it's dark in the sense that like. When you're around, it's a woman having to interact with male gatekeepers for everything, she, and they're mm-hmm. all a bunch of fucking, you know, just horn dogs, scumbags. So that's dark, but I, it didn't go to like Miss Forty Five territory, you know. It didn't turn it's into. It's not I spit on your grave or anything like right. that at all. Dave the woman. It doesn't go there, and I, I was Dave again, the Nashville girl. <laughs> <laughs> I was pleasantly surprised that it's like such a sincere, heartfelt. You know, movie, and she survives with her dignity too. I mean, that yeah. is probably the, the the best part. Like when you kind of get into that ending, and it's just her back at home, probably right next to that little pond that she got raped by, yeah, and just sitting on a log and playing her music because I guess that's probably the most important thing is that you know she has her music. She has her music. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love and I yeah, her yeah. songs are great. It's like the whole thing. I don't know. I, I was it was one of those movies that so I watched it and then the more. Like it was like the next day I was thinking about it, and I yeah. that's always for me the mark of like what I think a good movie is is like I see so many fucking movies we all do you and all three of us here do we all uh, see movies yeah. where we're like uh huh, and you know not to I, I I'll try not to like shit on these like Marvel movies or Disney movies but, you know prime example is like for the most part when you're done. You're not like the next day. You're not being. You're not thinking like, oh, it was really man when Alfred Molina showed up again as Doctor <laughs> Octopus. I like. I, you're just like, got it. It worked for you at the time, right? This yeah. is a movie that like the best kind of movies does that slow. Well, to quote Stephen King, it grows on you, right? Like it yeah. just kind of gets to that meteor shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I found myself as like as the the last few days have been going on, kind of thinking about that movie and how much I actually really enjoyed enjoyed it. Yeah. Was pleasantly surprised at that's, how that's great. That I, I made the right decision that <laughs> Well what's great too, dude, is that like it's I, I don't know of anybody else I'm sure there are people listening to this that have seen the movie and know about it and are probably mm-hmm. like, oh, I know Monica Gale lives right across the street from me. <laughs> yes. You know, but like she makes good lemonade. <laughs> 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 but like uh sh- uh this is a this movie would I think play so well for an audience like who hasn't seen mm-hmm. it who wants to see something from a time period that it, well the the again those male gatekeepers still exist that era yeah. is gone you know like that yeah. that that vibe that seventies yeah but hey, we're looking at it too like in this I don't know if you can even say post but this you know post Me Too world that we're in mm-hmm. now too so it, it, i think it even kind of influences the way that we've seen it because you know i hadn't seen this movie prior you know so now that i'm watching it prior what kind of baggage am i bringing into this when i'm watching the film and yet it still affected me and like you know i, mm-hmm. I was trying to kind of find the positive in this because at first i'm looking at it, i'm like okay so it's debbie does dallas meets a star is born you know, somewhere right, kind of right. in, in that area and everything. But as you said, there's something more going on in this movie. And despite the fact that, you know, you, you got to kind of look beyond the violence, you have to look on how does mm-hmm. the violence affect the main character? Mm-hmm. And how does she kind of come out of this in the end? And, you know, that's one of the things that's very, very surprising. It's a very, very positive film in that regard, even though all these horrible things befall her. And, you know, I think part of it that makes it kind of 
kind of sickening too is that we know that this kind of stuff still goes on. Yeah. Right. You know, 40 something years later. Yep. She, but you know, she never loses her dignity and uh, like at least or, or her, excuse me, her integrity. Yeah. And mm-hmm. she's keeps work. She, it's like her, she's, you know, she's, single mind it's actually in this letterbox review i was going to kind of disagree with the the notion that it's like a single-minded determination but like mm. it is single-minded because it's the yeah. only thing that matters to her is her music and you know even this awful stuff where you know she's raped twice through the pants by the way pretty impressive <laughs> but like where it happens and you know like but by the way, again, another thing that is kind of in a way subversive, it doesn't really it like I like the first the first assault on her is like just like on her face. Actually both of them, the the two times that it happens, it's just like on her and she has this like like response to it where she's just so disappointed that mm-hmm. like this is what these is important to these people. Yeah. you know it's yeah. like it's like she's just kind of going like you're missing you're missing the point and people ask her you know they're like throughout the movie like you ever been with a, a man before and she's like you know have you ever made love or whatever and she's like no and she's not she's not mm-hmm. lying you know she's just like i'm right i i've been, <laughs> i've been taken advantage of but i've never right. been able to have that experience and you know that's not Thing that's important to me right now it's important mm-hmm. maybe for you but not for me anyway here's my song <laughs> yeah yeah by the way the song is friends yeah <laughs> there's another good song building blocks that was a good one <laughs> that's one i kept singing over and over building blocks i was like you know a good you know a song is good when it doesn't have to be like the same genre it can like go out of another genre and be like mm-hmm. a cool song like mm-hmm. they're like bubbles from deep throat. <laughs> exactly. You know, put, put a little, like, I don't know, some like synth wave shit in there and it sounds yeah, yeah. rad, you know, like anyway, building blocks. Yeah. Pretty, pretty, pretty great. Um, what else? Will? do you, what else about that movie? Anything else for you? Um, well, I think that it just has a, 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 a lot of times recommending movies to people, particularly of a certain vintage, the, the exploitation angle we were talking about. Um, a lot of them just sort of meander along. And this has a very, like a very, uh, a strong narrative of sort of the vignettes of misadventures that she has. Um, I feel like it's very watchable, you know, and I feel like um, uh, some movies, particularly narrative uh, 70s movies tend to be slower, you know? Um, and I think that this is a, the director really knows how to just keep things moving forward, which I think, makes it watchable, which is again, something that I was surprised, surprised by, because I, I guess this is just my sort of knee jerk reaction to a lot of stuff is a lot of these filmmakers just weren't very good, you know, and, and you might've had several good scenes in a movie interspersed with lots of just people walking and talking about nothing in particular. And this movie doesn't have that. Every scene is sort of built on what's before and, you know, and the people that she meets along the way, even the characters that show up, here and there for just a minute are interesting and you know acted well enough and you know so that that was also something that aspect very competently made film yeah <laughs> just a very simple narrative i mean it's just a human it's story easy to yeah. watch yeah i mean it's right. it goes a to b it gets it gets there mm-hmm. 
what was it, ninety six minute running time on this? Probably. I mean, it was short as hell. It was like, yeah, it, it didn't it didn't uh, drag yeah. to me. It it just no. it got where it needed to go. It was it was the right length. It might even be shorter than that, man. Mm-hmm. It might have been. Well, I don't know. Definitely wasn't longer than that. Yeah. No. So it worked out great. What about you, Chris? Anything else? Uh, well. There was one thing that was a little bit disappointing. Ooh, my, what? Jamie was watching this with me, my, my wife and everything. And when she goes to stay at the YWCA, and there's that one girl that, you know, she's from Brooklyn. <laughs> and she throws out that Brooklyn accent. The topless you, woman. You, you, you sh- Yeah, when she's in the shower, it's like, you know, hey, give me a towel. I only have the towel that I'm wearing. <laughs> well, go back to my room and get something else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but when she says that she's from Brooklyn, you should have seen the eye roll that my wife gave, you know, all the time. Well, your my wife, wife is from Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, <so>. yeah. She... <laughs> now, what would she do if she found out that actress is really from Brooklyn? She'd probably call bullshit on that. <laughs> How dare you shit she's on your probably legacy? From fucking Staten Island. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying, she's from Brooklyn. The bitch. I thought that was funny. That woman that that shows up. That like she she befriends everybody. You know the uh, yeah. Jamie. She befriends everybody, which I thought was pretty fascinating um and just like in debbie does dallas yeah the the yeah right (laughs) Mm -hmm. um i have never seen it because i'm not a pervert (laughs) (laughs) just kidding i bought stock in it um i am debbie here i am i've been here the whole time you guys have been looking for me and i'm right here bambi woods disappeared just just like 30 years ago just like a lot of the Women in all three of these movies, by the way, have all kind of vanished and and retired and or died, yeah. mm-hmm. which is pretty fascinating uh, when you think about it. Um, well, Nashville Girl, yeah, really, really cool, different movie, I think, for I enjoyed us. it, yeah. It wasn't what I had expected and everything. And I'm actually very glad that you brought this movie because, you know, our show is called Dead City Drive. And while we've kind of really focused a lot on horror and everything, it's always been our intention mm-hmm. to kind of really cover the gauntlet of mm-hmm. psychotronic cinema, you know, and that is exploitation, you know, and yeah. nun movies and revenge mm-hmm. flicks and you know, road pictures and, you know, Diane Thorne Nazi movies, you know, all that kind of stuff. (laughs) So, you know, we, uh, it gives us an opportunity to really kind of branch out. And, you know, for those that love us for our horror, Hey, thank you. And we'll always be doing that kind of stuff, but there's so much more out there. And this was definitely worth my time to watch. So uh, I do appreciate you bringing this one. This would be a lot of fun to watch at a drive-in. This is, this is a great drive-in movie. Yeah. You can hear the, those country songs coming through the little speakers in your window. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just <laughs> yes, it's just, it's yes, just a great. It's just a certain vibe, you know, that they just that I just that I just love. And so I'm glad you guys dug it. Um, yeah, you need a refresher from the horror every every now and then. Agreed, absolutely. All right, guys. So we have a, a great choice for our headlining feature, Nashville Girl. Um, but now we have to decide what would be the perfect pairing with nashville girl and i'd like to bring a movie to the table if you don't mind mm-hmm. oh come on you cinematic sommelier come on show <laughs> us what pairs perfectly with nashville girl well okay it's maybe not no it's the best here we go mm-hmm. i'm gonna go with 1976's hollywood boulevard is uh, this miracle pictures welcome to miracle pictures 
where they make a picture a week. And if it's a good picture, it's a miracle. Hi, I'm Candy. You're an actress. Well, you keep to the right place, kid. Hollywood Boulevard. The street where starlets are made. <laughs> Overnight. In this scene, your motivation is to, to be... stay alive. <laughs> That's showbiz. Everybody's doing it now. Let's do it. More of that. Anything can happen on Hollywood Boulevard. Hollywood. All right. So this is directed mm-hmm. by Alan Arkish and co-directed by Joe Dante. Um, both of their oh, yeah. first feature film um, that they ever did together. Uh Written by, um, I don't know, a guy named Danny, I don't even know how to pronounce this, Danny Opatoshu, Opatoshu. Oh, uh, Why don't you just say Pat Hobby, all right? Yeah, writing <laughs> writing under an alias is Pat Hobby. Um, but it stars, oh my God, the starring uh, Candace, how do you say her name? Rielson? Rielson? I was going to say Rielson. Rielson, Candace Rielson, Mary Warrenov. Rock and Ricky Rialto. <laughs> oh my God, I never even considered that. <laughs> Uh, Mary Warrenov, Rita George, Jeffrey Kramer, Dick mm-hmm. Miller, Paul Bartel, and Commander Cody and his flying yes, airmen. <laughs> which I'm t- sorry, trucking and fucking man, what a great song! <laughs> so here we go. This is this is the letter. Oh, and by the way, this is a Roger Corman film. Oh yeah, yeah. really? So you think Roger Corman actually let Alan Arkish and Joe Dante out of the editing suite so they could? Uh, As know, a matter of fact, he did. I'm glad you said that. So well, I want to get into that. So the letterbox synopsis of this film is as follows: A midwestern ingenue moves to Hollywood and rivals a B movie queen in low budget quickies. Eh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that that pretty much nails it. <laughs> Close enough, right? Yes. <laughs> Simplifying things a little bit, but um, well. Let's take a minute and talk about this movie. Uh, Hollywood Boulevard. Okay, so Alan Arkish and Joe Dante worked in the trailer department for Roger Corman. So they both got hired. They're both film nerds. Nerds. Nerds! (laughs) They get hired by Roger Corman to cut trailers. This was – and so as Joe Dante claims or says, they cut every trailer for every Roger Corman movie – from the years, I believe, 72, maybe 73 to 78. So every trailer that you've mm. ever seen for any Roger Corman movie was edited by Joe Dante and Alan Arkish. So these guys had a pretty intimate knowledge of the kind of footage that you know Corman had for his movies. And the producer of this movie was a man named John Davison. Um, and he made a bet with Roger Corman. Supposedly, the the story is he bet Roger Corman that he could make the cheapest movie in New World Pictures history, sixty thousand dollars. And Roger Corman said, "Deal, you got it. Let's see, let's see what happens." So these two guys said, "We'll do it. We'll just film a movie of making a movie, and we'll intercut yeah. all this footage that we're intimately familiar with to pad out all of the action stuff." And kind of helped to sell it using a lot of the props that they still had. <laughs> Everything that they around. still had hanging around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, I do want to start by reading this um, letterboxed review yeah. by uh, the co-director Alan Arkish himself. Is this the best movie about Hollywood ever? No. <laughs> but it's the best one that I ever co-directed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are you interested in how drive-in movies were made in the 70s? Are you not offended by nudity and bad jokes? Do you love Roger Corman movies? And this is, I think, key. Do you wish you had been there? If yeah. your answer is yes, then this is the best movie about Hollywood ever. He gave it five stars, by the way, which I, I wouldn't go quite so far. <laughs> I think he's a little biased. Yeah, I think he is, too. Uh, I think he is, too. I did go down a rabbit hole where I just spent the evening reading Alan Arkish reviews of movies. And I was like, all this from the director of Caddyshack, too. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, thank you, Mrs. Esterhaus. <laughs> <laughs> all right, here. Let me. Here's why it's great. So, first of all, this movie is, I think, well, if if Nashville Girl is the sincere, um, mm-hmm. heartfelt movie, this is the Mad Magazine parody version <laughs> of the of the girl on the road who seeks bigger mm-hmm. and better things, um, and it has a handful of things that I just absolutely love about it or two handfuls Ooh, yeah well okay you said it mm-hmm. you said it <laughs> come on dude we're talking about 70s exploitation cinema here come on everybody knows i love titties everybody knows i love titties sorry i'll cut that out that's just from another movie <laughs> okay and you know this <laughs> um 70s era hollywood mm-hmm. that's what this movie has oozing from it it's kind of like you know how everybody talked about uh once a time once upon a time in hollywood yeah tarantino movie and how everybody loved it they're like oh i'd love just cruising around with those guys in 1970s hollywood well this is for real yeah like this is that for real and the man i don't know what it is about so when i when i lived in la it was still it was still seedy and dirty and it sucked (laughs) but Mm -hmm. it you know, it's cleaned up. There's malls. There's condos. It's just different. It's more crowded than it ever was. And in this era, it was still this kind of Babylon, you know, out in the middle of the mm-hmm. desert. It hadn't quite reached uh, peak, um, you know, dipshit. <laughs> <laughs> so there's just this kind of like wonderful, uh, sleazy vibe to it that uh kind of like when i watch like an old movie a new york like an east coast movie like a frank hannenlotter film you know i'm like Mm. damn look at 42nd street look at that shit it's like it looks i want to go there not because of the prostitutes and all that like i want to just see those just an experience yeah it's just it's different than how it looks now so this movie is just full of an era that we'll never get to experience ever again. And so there's a little bit of a... It's one of the things I kind of asked, and I don't really want to jump the gun too much, but it's it, it plays out, it's a through line, I think, in all three of these movies, too. What has the internet done to red light districts? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, is, is it the internet that actually killed the red light districts? Because I think it is. Yeah, maybe. I wonder. What Well, what else would have done it? 
It was gentrification. <laughs> yeah, you know, but the cops. I mean, you have the famous yet, yeah, you know, Times Square and Forty Second in New York when Giuliani came on board. They, you know, I had friends living there, and they're like, <laughs> like when they they made CBGBs take the 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 spray paint awning off, you know. <laughs> One of my friends was living there and it's like, yeah, crime is going down, you know, air quotes, but like they're taking away all the, all the grit and the grime. Yeah. And you know, it's when like the, the Disney stores started opening, uh, on 42nd street, it, you know, it literally was that it was literally gentrification and that's what, you know, swept all that stuff, either got rid of it or swept it under the rug, but eventually it all moved online. That's right. Yeah. And there's a part, you know, there's that part of me that's like, good, it's healthy, it's clean, it's, it is what it is, you know, but mm-hmm. there's that part of me that just goes, well, there goes personality, and now we're just, everybody mm-hmm. gets to continue to be some robot machine who has no yeah. concept of, like, what this was like, this this crazy yeah. time. No heart and soul, man. So anyway, all right, this movie also has, as Chris said earlier, trucking and fucking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really an inexplicable uh sequence that's just like a music video yeah you know two and a half minute music video of this band doing the song at sunset you know like on some cliffside somewhere and it's funny (laughs) it's a funny song there are a bunch of nerds playing i don't know at first it's like a saxophone is playing and i was like holy shit i didn't know weird al played sax yeah and then the same thing is like is that weird al and then it comes to the singer and i was like oh shit i guess weird al's a singer too and then it shows everybody looks like basically weird al Al. (laughs) um so i don't know what that's all about but i if did I, i said it earlier right like this movie is a compilation of Footage. Footage from other Roger Corman movies, but this young girl moves out to Hollywood to be an actress, Mm -hmm. and she's just all young and doe-eyed and has no idea what's going on, and she just gets involved (laughs) with these these weirdos. Specifically, she hooks up with uh, this company called Miracle Pictures, where if it's a good movie, it's a miracle, (laughs) and is their slogan, and that is run by, well, the director Paul Bartel. And his his star Mary Warrenov, and then a bunch of other women that are all being knocked off one by one. There's turns out there's a murder mystery here. Um, so this girl goes out to Hollywood and starts doing this kind of stuff and working with these people. She gets an agent really quick, and that's where we come to Dick Miller as Walter mm. Paisley. We get Dick Miller, who not only gets to play a drunk scene that he does so well. Yes. <laughs> There's nothing better than watching Dick Miller play drunk. But he also gets a fight scene. Yeah. He gets to fight a in the dude projection in a projection room. booth. And to make your face explode, he watches himself in another Roger yeah. Corman movie. <laughs> it's so meta, man. It's so yes. meta. It just blew my mind. Uh, it's such a great moment. Um, so, seriously, if you're not sold already... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just stop dick miller um but i'm gonna keep going we also have mary warrenov in this film and she's bandoliered bare-legged and blazing bullets <laughs> <laughs> seriously w- was there ever i i don't know what i am i am in love with mary warrenov there's yeah. no other way i can say i don't know how i'm sitting here like trying to mince words I love that woman. And yeah. yet you hate eating Raul. 
Well, he doesn't t- taste too good these days. <laughs> a little too fatty for me. Yeah. Well, uh, for years, uh, you know, I only knew her as Principal Togar at Moroccan Roll High School. That was yeah. my intro to her. And then slowly over the years, I learned, you know, okay, she was in these other movies with Parbatel. I, I remember seeing Eating Raul back in the day. And then learning about, you know, her connection to Andy Warhol and the Velvet great. Underground. Yeah. And seeing those pictures of her in New York in the 20s. She's just this great beauty, yeah. you know. And um, all the Maplethorpe stuff she did, too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, just such a striking um, looking woman. I mean, like I was saying to you earlier, Chris, like, right. you, you know, if you saw her in person, you would be kind of taken by the fact that like she's so tall and her, you know, her features are kind of like weird, like wide set, like long mm-hmm. face. And she just and, and there are the, just things that like if you saw her in person, you know, you'd be like, huh. but when that can't God damn, when that camera is on her, it's yeah. like there's she was made to be in front of a camera. Like there are right. some people who are just made for that and she's one of them yeah. and uh my the first time i ever saw mary warnov was in warlock oh yeah yeah and a uh, fortune teller yeah, yeah the, and it was like one of the scariest scenes that i'd ever seen in a movie i was a little kid i saw it and i was like ah, i was so afraid of those so i never really put two and two together that that's who it was and then later it became you know rock and roll high school forever <laughs> so you're joking <laughs> you, you, you're what that was that movie was on comedy central like every other yeah. day, Rock and Roll High School Forever with Corey Feldman. And yeah. so I watched that movie a lot because it was always on. And I was like, oh, she looks kind of familiar. She's great in House of the Devil a little more recently. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And she's just, she's, she's wonderful. She owns every scene she's in. I just, I love her. I think she's incredible. She just seems like she such did a cool a, chick. She did a Christmas horror movie in the early 70s. I think. Her husband's Silent movie, Night? Silent Night, Bloody Night, or Silent Evil Night? Night? Something. I think it was one of those that had, it was released under different titles. It's um, not the one everybody knows. It's not Silent Night, Deadly Night. It's the one where. Like Christmas Evil. Not Christmas Evil. It's, I think it's Silent Night, Evil Night. What are you, or, or Bloody Night. Yeah, but there's a, there's a mental hospital and there's an old house. She get out. It's been a few years since I saw it. It definitely starts with Silent Night, but does it yeah. end with Bloody Night or Evil Night? I, think it's I don't bloody. know. Yeah. Well, but it's it's from the early seventies, um, and uh, I just confused it probably with the other, you know, the eighty slasher or whatever. Um, and it's it's really cool, you know. Yeah, and she's always great. <laughs> she is. She's wonderful. She's great in Death Race two thousand, of which this movie pulls a lot from. Oh my god! But I'm getting ahead of my, <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself here. Also, we get. Jeff Kramer doing his G Wiz shtick for basically eighty <laughs> fucking minutes. If you if you love watching him in Jaws, yeah. you know, be like G Wiz Chief. Oh, don't forget Santa Claus the movie and Santa Claus. Well, that was late, way later, wasn't it? Eighty five, eighty five, yeah, somewhere around there. Then you'll love watching this movie where he's the romantic lead <laughs> screenwriter, mm-hmm. Pat Hobby, which gets a little meta there too. Um, okay. We also have Machete Maidens of Mora Tau, <laughs> yes, uh, which is just incredible. That's the movie that they're all they go to the Philip the Philippines to shoot mm-hmm. this movie. And what's incredible is they're using those. You mentioned these movies earlier, Will the uh, the like the big dollhouse, those women in prison movies, but mm-hmm. the women in Filipino prison movies, yeah, turkey shoot and all that other stuff. Well, that was the Australian one. That's turkey the that's Australia? yeah that's the that Philippines Brian okay. Trenchard Smith one, but like oh, okay. the like the big dollhouse right uh and the big bird cage. the big bird cage like the hot box i think 
all those movies that Jack Hill directed yeah. and uh, probably had a just incredible time <laughs> getting dysentery in, in the Philippines, but <laughs> directing all these naked, beautiful women. So they use footage of that, these movies, interspersed with somewhere off Coldwater Canyon, <laughs> you know, or like Tarzana, I don't know, where they're like just in somebody's backyard in the woods and they're like, you have Mary Warnov and, and Candace like showing up with these machine guns, Tommy guns, Tommy yeah. guns shooting mm-hmm. them, and then it cuts to this stock footage or you know from other movies of like Filipino dudes falling out of trees and <laughs> getting blown up, and you're like, okay. Um, and then, like I said, we go into a, a murder on the set movie. It turns into kind of like a murder mystery, um, I guess. That you're not really give a shit about solving. <laughs> It doesn't matter. <laughs> they kind of introduce it a little too late. It's yeah. like, okay, we just thought they were accident prone, but now, oh, there's somebody that's actually committing these crimes. That's pretty funny. It also has a reprise of one of those great lines from one of those women in prison movies. Uh, Paul Bartel uh, has a moment where he goes, and now, ladies, uh, 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 now, everybody, this scene is the most important scene in the film. It's a film. It's a, it's a, it's a scene where the, the whole point of the movie is funneled into this one line and it all is down to this and action. And these actors come up in frame and the girl says, you get it up or I'll cut it off. And then they they drop back down out of frame and he's like, and cut. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) It's filled with that like kind of Joe Dante. Talk about reprise and Joe Dante though. Something that I really noticed. It's pretty obscure, but a joke from this movie, Joe Dante recycles in another one of his movies that has Dick Miller in it. What? What is it? Explorers. What's the joke? Uh, hey, hey, I got a new car. It's called a Rolls Canarly. <laughs> Rolls down one hill, Canarly get up the next. Oh, my God. And it's Robert Picardo that delivers it in Explorers. <laughs> That's but, hilarious. Yeah. It's the same joke. <laughs> it's the same joke. That's great. Because, I mean, as soon as I heard it, I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> I know that joke. What else does this movie have? Oh, three-way career meetings. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know if you guys yeah. have ever lived in Hollywood, but that's a real thing. Yeah. Um, all right. And then I think most importantly for us, it has drive-in depravity. Oh, There's definitely. an entire yeah. sequence set at a drive-in where they go to watch the shitty movie that they're in, and she gets progressively more drunk as the scene goes on, and yep. she's embarrassed that the she's in The rape scene! They said they were going to take that out! <laughs> <laughs> they always say they're going to take it out. Um, all right, so drive into depravity. Uh, we get Godzina. Yeah. <laughs> we have uh, mutant flies and spaceman monkeys. Mm-hmm. Um, we have footage from it's basically Death Race 3000. 3000? Well... We've already seen 2,000, so now oh, we're getting to that's see that's, yeah. all these Volkswagen cars that they kept around for Death Race getting to be brought back into action. Yeah. And, of course, dressing up like Frankenstein, too. That was, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and by the way, Paul Bartel directed Death Race 2000. Yes. So it's kind of weird for seeing Roger him <laughs> directing a version of Death Race. Uh, it's, <laughs> Once again, it's so meta. It's out there. It's, it's out so there. meta. We have a saloon stock and slash. And just like you said, it where the where the killer is dressed like Frankenstein from Death Race yeah. two thousand. Like, there's a whole sequence with this like cr- like fog, and the lighting is like blues and greens and purples and magentas, and they're like running through the f- and it's it looks so colorful. It looks like a Joe Dante film all of a sudden. Oh, like super mm. colorful, but it's on a western set. <laughs> 
and be, and it's a woman running around being chased by a killer dressed like Darth Vader, <laughs> basically. So wonderful, wonderful. Okay, I'm not going to spoil it, but death by Hollywood sign. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that and then was, uh, pretty nice. Of course, party in the hills with Robbie the robot as the help. Definitely. I mean, all of these things. Okay, guys, it's borderline incomprehensible. <laughs> the yeah. movie is is it's mercifully short. I think it's like only eighty three minutes long. It does feel longer than that. It really does. It has like a like it drags and drags and drags in some spots, and you can tell that they shot it in ten days, and mm-hmm. you can tell that the stock footage doesn't work. And to a point, it benefits the the film i mean you can the anarchic spirit did i say that word right yes okay yeah um it's there like i said it feel it does there's a looney tunes joke a woman falls out of the sky parachuting and, and hits the ground the and leaves a hole in the ground like a looney tunes cartoon which again mm-hmm. he reprises that joke in gremlins too mm-hmm. except with the batman, batman <laughs> so like <laughs> yeah it's got this this goofball you know Mad Magazine are it's not quite National Lampoon vibe. It's more like Mad Magazine, a little more sophomoric. Yeah, just yeah, and and but it still has all the titties, you know, like all that stuff. That so again, it hits those exploitation marks very similarly to Will to your movie, like yeah, it it because it's the same. It's essentially the same story. A girl moves out to goes ambling yeah. to the yeah. to. Not Nashville, but Hollywood, and runs into a bunch of just creepy pervert men and has to deal with them. And both of the women in both of these movies stay true to their dreams. <laughs> like, they're yeah. both like, look, this is yeah. what we wanted to do. By the end of the movie, the girl in Hollywood Boulevard is a star and yeah. she's done it all the right way, the way she feels like she accomplished it. So it's almost reductive. To say that this, you know, our thematic link here is bad girls, big dreams. Because, mm-hmm. Will, in your movie, Jamie is not, I don't, she's not a bad girl. No, no. There's an innocence, it sounds like, in these, in these two, yeah. the, the two movies. And they, they have those elements of exploitation. You think they're going to go, but they don't quite, you know. Yeah. And that's go the over joke. into it. <laughs> well, but here's the deal. Roger Corman, regardless, he would have still called this shit "bad girls, big dreams." Yeah. So fuck it, like That's it right. stays. It's like re- right. whether it's exploitation, exploitative it's or not. A much better title. <laughs> That's not a bad Roger Corman. That's not bad. What I was thinking was more breasts. <laughs> <laughs> Roger Corman's so funny. Less he, money and more breasts. He hated will make you more money. <laughs> yeah. So if if um will if uh. If your film Nashville Girl was the uh, the graham cracker chocolate half of a s'more, <laughs> then Hollywood Boulevard is, is marshmallow the the singed but somewhat <laughs> fluffy gooey marshmallow middle. Yeah, <laughs> um, which honestly leaves one more movie here, which would be the cayenne pepper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like a little cayenne pepper on my s'more. So, Chris, why don't you tell us what would be your choice for a feature? Well, the uh, the flick that I bring 
is 1979's Hardcore. A controversial subject. A brilliant actor. A powerful and touching film. A movie which will take you into a world never dealt with in a major motion picture. A father searches for his missing daughter, only to find she has been used in a sordid and shocking way. Nothing you have ever done, seen, or imagined can prepare you for the experience of hardcore. Turn it all off! George C. Scott. Hardcore. Written and directed by Paul Schrader. It stars George C. Scott, Peter Boyle, Season Hubley, and Darren Number Two, <laughs> Dick Sargent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, there's quite a few people that I recognized in this movie. There's a lot more yeah, than that. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, yeah. and I, I kind of was making notes of that. I'm like, oh, it's that person. And oh, it's that person. And once again, people that have all kinds of genre cred as well. There's a guy named that, that plays the character, I think, Todd. Yeah, that's Gary Graham. Is that who? The, the, he, That's from the fucking robot, robot jocks. jocks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, and he shit. played Sykes in uh, in the Alien Nation TV series. Oh wow! And okay. he was also on. Uh, God, I mean, he was in the Star Trek. I mean, and once again, I'm a Star Trek nerd. So, but I mean, he had a couple parts in DS9. He had a big role as a Vulcan in uh, Enterprise. So yeah, Gary Graham. And then uh, Tracy Walter, who plays Bob the Goon, Bob the shows Goon. up. Yeah, absolutely. As Bob a, the Goon. Works at, I don't want your fucking 50 cents. Yeah. Get the fuck out of here. Which was really good. And actually, he was in one of my favorite Steve McQueen movies, The Hunter. You ever seen that? I've never seen The Hunter. Yeah. Tracy Walters no. actually plays the villain in that Ooh, movie. I love Tracy Walter. Yeah. He's Apparently, he was best friends with Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Well, that's why he was Bob the Goon. It was him, Jack Nicholson. Th- now, tell me this doesn't sound like the best <laughs> 70s party in L.A. Jack Nicholson, Tracy Walter, uh, what's uh, Richard, the dude from Six Feet Under, the dad from Six Feet oh, Under. Richard Jenkins. Richard yeah. Jenkins. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, oh, Harry Dean Stanton. That yep. would have been a fucking crew to hang with, definitely. Yeah. I want to go to a party in the hills with those four yeah. and have Robbie the Robot be the hell. Hell yeah. <laughs> well, I'm down with that. That's like a dream come true. Red Brown's in here, too. Dude, fuck you. I know. Yeah, I know. I'm like, Captain America. Sweet. But, I, Captain but America. I missed who he was. He was the bouncer. He's the bouncer that throws George C. Scott out of the, uh, Dude, the massage parlor. Oh God, okay. I was like, hey, it's Red Brown. I only saw his name in the credits. So Roscoe I didn't... Lee Red Brown. <laughs> now, before we get in, by the way, too, before we get too far into it, another credit I want to say that I noticed at the end, assistant to the producer, Mary Ellen Trainer. Oh, I didn't notice that. Do you know her, Will? 
What is that? I know the name. She, so me. she's an actress. She used to be married to Bob Zemeckis. She was married to Bob Zemeckis, okay. and uh, she was in Lethal Weapon. Yeah, she's the psychiatrist in the Lethal Weapon movies, and that... she's the mom in Goonies. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She's, okay. Uh, the... And she was in the first episode of Tales from the Crypt. The best the remake, episode of the Tales from the Crypt. Of, uh, of uh, what's the episode? And all through, the house. all through the house. Yeah, she has a great okay. screen. Jesus, Joseph! <laughs> <laughs> After she buries an axe in his head. So I thought that was interesting that she was the assistant to the producer. But you know, those people are all linked. This is a Paul Schrader. Well, film. and who's the producer mm-hmm. on the movie? The executive producer, Roger Corman. John Milius. Oh, that's right. John Milius yeah. was the executive producer on this movie. That's right. So I was like, oh, here's a little. Another connection. The cinematographer is Michael Chapman. Michael Chapman is oh, the yeah. is the, the a lot of driver. stuff. Yeah, he did Taxi Driver. His wife was Amy Holden Jones, who was the assistant editor of Hollywood Boulevard. Went on to direct uh, Slumber Party Massacre. This is so incestuous, mm-hmm. isn't mm-hmm. it? Crazy. Like all three of these movies, they're intertwined. Are intertwined. Wow. This is literally. Will the perfect triple feature? <laughs> well, I've got it. I've got another connection because the actress from Hardcore, Susan Gubley, mm-hmm. she was married to Kurt Russell. Yeah, and she was in Escape from New York too. She's the girl yeah. that gets pulled through the floor. Yeah, yeah. And the director of Natural Girl was married to Goldie Hawn. Get the fuck oh out of oh here! My gosh, oh this my is God. like the most perfect. <laughs> Let's just skip a double feature. Let's make it a triple feature Will anyway. Will this be the very first triple feature <laughs> in Dead City Drive in history? We may have to think about <laughs> Holy that. Holy shit. Well, we'll wait till we get to the end, but it's oh amazing. my God. Just so much with this movie. Well, let me give a, a synopsis here. Yeah, read um, that letterboxed synopsis. The letterboxed synopsis is as follows. A conservative Midwest businessman ventures into the sordid underworld of pornography in California to look for his runaway teenage daughter who is making porno films in the porno pits of Los Angeles. Now, obviously, we we talk about these things in detail, so it's kind of pointless to say spoilers for some of this stuff. We don't like to give away necessarily everything, but... And I guess you kind of know, based on the title, it's called fucking hardcore, right? Mm -hmm. But... There is an element of the surprise there when you find out what's going on, you know, like, all right, whatever. I'm just getting ahead of myself here. Sorry, Chris. You know, I don't know. I, I unfortunately think that this movie, this movie still has power. I mean, I think it's mm-hmm. still a very, very strong, powerful movie. Um, I don't think it has the kind of shocking effect that it probably did in 1979 as it does now, because probably once again, because of the Internet. Um, And just the pervasiveness and the ease in getting porn and also that horrible movie that Joel Schumacher made called 8mm that uh, really kind of rips off some of the fucking shots from this movie. You know, that whole sequence where uh, George C. Scott is in, you know, the the porn theater and Peter Boyle's running him the the 8mm film that he found of George C. Scott's daughter. And actually, I mean, his whole reactions that he does to him, like, wow, didn't Nicolas Cage do almost the exact same thing when he watched the porno? That's funny. Well, dude, okay, so I don't know about you. Well, I've never seen this film. This is a movie that has been on my radar for years, Mm -hmm. but I'd never seen it until we went to do this episode. So, in fact, I am super fresh on the viewing as of today. I watched the movie today. Oh, wow, okay. I was... That scene that you're talking about, I had like I had tear, I streaming tears 
God, flames such a on the bitch. side of my face. No, yeah. I, I, I was really like crying. For, look, George C. Scott, I think, is one of the greatest actors of all time. I could oh, watch I him be a conflicted male, <laughs> like in anything he does, because he does that so well. Him, because he's such a strong man, you know, he's such a big, powerful man. So when you see him, he was such a vulnerable performer. Mm -hmm. He cries. To see him do that, it feels so real and so um, personal. And that moment when he's like, turn it off, when he's Mm -hmm. watching it, dude, I was fucking weeping. I was like, this is incredible. Like, this is the kind of stuff that I love to watch. I love just to watch an actor work and you can you're right maybe it's not as shocking what we see in the film you know it's not like but it's still got a lot of gravity but there's the the weight yeah. to yeah. it is there it feels it's so heavy and sad that's why you have george c scott lead your movie yeah. like that you need that scene yes yes but I, I think it kind of all yeah it definitely it hinges off of that but you know some other little interesting things that i think make this uh movie very very interesting is this jack nishi score now, I don't know. How familiar with Jack Nietzsche? Not very. I mean, he, he was Phil Spector's number one guy, like his right hand man. Like his Bob the Goon? Mm-hmm. His Bob the Goon, <laughs> yes. Yeah, he was Phil Spector's Bob the Goon. So, I mean, the whole wall of sound, you know, and just what mm-hmm. I found really fascinating was that the scenes that take place in Grand Rapids, where, uh, what is it, Jake Van Horn? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, is George it Van Horn? C- Van Dorn? Van Dorn, yeah. Van Dorn, I'm, I'm yeah. thinking Daryl Van Horn, which yeah. takes us back to Jack Nicholson. Oh, my God! What the <laughs> fuck? Um, but uh, anywho, you know, it, there were these interesting cues that kind of took place. When they were in the Midwest and everything, there was this weird kind of like bellows organ. And then they had this weird kind of like the glass harmonium, which mm-hmm. – uh, do you know what an harmonium is? Yeah. It, yeah, so it's like the thing – it was an instrument that, that – Benjamin Franklin actually invented where it's a series of glass bowls with a tub of water underneath it and the whole thing spins as you kind of push it with the foot pedals and it talks to ghosts yes yeah but I mean you know there was like harmonium in there so there was this weird kind of like haunting quality but it also kind of had this you know very of another century kind of type thing and you know their their community there there are a bunch of Dutch Calvinists and everything so you know they're they're kind of old school and then of course once you they move into LA you start to get uh, modular synth. I mean, oh, yeah. You know, like that mm-hmm. modular synth sound. And then all of a sudden, like the funky bass starts to come in and everything. And I'm like, oh, there's just that real marked difference. You yeah. Know? And it was just, I, I thought it was a really interesting score and soundtrack there. Um, but I mean, other things you've got in here Peter Boyle, which, you know, Peter Boyle, I guess he's a favorite of, of you know, Schrader because uh, he's also in Taxi Driver. Playing a very similar type role as well. Does he ever mm-hmm. brush his hair, comb his hair? <laughs> yeah, actually, yes. As the monster, he did. Okay, I always find it fascinating every time I see Peter Boyle in a movie where he doesn't play a monster. Yeah, that his hair is like he just could not be bothered to just go like this. And he wore like a hat for all of Outland, so you know you couldn't really see his hair in that one. He's great in this movie because he plays it so um, you, you like you're never sure what this dude is up to like yeah yeah yep well i always wondered how did he get the footage 
You know, that was the big question that I was constantly asking. And there was always something kind of weird about this as well. It's like he knows more than he's letting on and he's just fleecing and yet George he doesn't, Scott's character. But he he's not like he also, you know, like is there and and kind of in a way saves the day. Yeah. And yeah. like he he's not it turns like uh, are we spoiling? No, fuck it. Like it turns out he's not such an awful guy. Like he's not a black and white bad guy. And that, and that's the thing about this movie, right? Like it, I, and Paul Schrader is wonderful at doing this. Yeah, presenting this world where people have black and white beliefs, but the world as we all know it is shades, shades of gray. gray. It really is. And and these characters, like George Scott's incredible. Like you know, he's a Calvinist who believes in the sovereignty mm-hmm. of God and, and these things that uh, unless predestination, predestination, unless he can do something about it, you know, like he allows his beliefs to like disappear in order for him to kind of get what he wants. So the whole time he's preaching about how, mm-hmm. or he's in a belief system that says this has happened because of God's will. Yeah. Um, God's will Erickson and this is that it's happening because of this and he is going well you're telling me just to wait for God to let him show himself I'm gonna go fucking find her yeah and he's beating people up he's saying sure show me your dick you know he like tells the kid go ahead and show me your dick because he pretends to be a, a porn producer yeah and he, he puts on a wig and a did you, did you catch what yeah. his alias was what was it no, I, I forget. When the guy comes in to kind of audition, the first guy, yeah. and he opens up the door, he's like, are you Mr. Holcomb? No shit. No shit. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I had the closed captioning on because I was like- Is know, it spelled like you? Uh, well, it's hard to say because like the closed captioning, I they, they never get that right. Uh, it's always phonetically. Right. So it could be an like M that. or a B. We don't know. But it, but, well, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. But I was still, like, yeah. his name was Holcomb. <laughs> All right, of course. Of course. But also like wholesome. Yeah, or 100% whole cum. Oh, shit. Which is what I totally got when I was in junior high school all the time. You got just 100% <laughs> whole oh my cum God, all dude. over Bukaki, you? Bukaki, Bukaki, Bukaki. It was just, it was crazy. Well, you know Paul Schrader. That's why the skin and the hair look so good. You know, <laughs> you know Paul Schrader is thinking about that stuff because all that dude did was stay up all night snorting coke and writing. Yeah. So, yeah. like, he was like, oh, whole cum, that has triple meaning. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, the man's a genius. I mean, anybody yes. that directs a remake of Cat People like he did, you know, it's just definitely a sign of genius. Yeah, I will. I will say, I'm, I'm a Schrader fanboy. Uh, uh, the other, I'll tell you, I'm going to blow your mind here, uh, Brendan. You probably remember the other. Uh, Chris, I don't know if you know this. The other movie that I was that I suggested beside Nashville Girl was Blue Collar. Yeah. Which is which is one of my uh, that I saw many years ago when I first started getting serious about like watching grown-up movies oh wait you that's know, paul schrader movies. right yeah well that's, that's the paul other reason that's what i said i said well that's i guess it, since the... he's gonna go with nashville girl i'll take hardcore and that'll cover the schrader quota <laughs> <laughs> you guys maybe yeah. we should never have a guest programmer again it should just be the three of us <laughs> and we'll just do triple features from there here on out yeah the show is changing format <laughs> once again <laughs> but I mean, that was the other thing too, because like when you had, when you had mentioned that that other film, uh, Blue Collar, and everything, I'm like, oh yeah, and this is the movie that Harvey Keitel and Yafakoto and Paul Schrader 
basically, uh, and Richard Pryor all tried to kill mm-hmm. one another on. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah. Uh, Will, what is your um, – so as a Schrader as a Schrader head, what yeah. um, uh, what do you think of Dominion? <laughs> oh, no. That, that – I haven't seen that. That is not uh, – that didn't seem like – I guess it seemed like a match for Schrader, but uh, – Nah. Okay. I, I like I like my I like my my pure Schrader. Did you like yeah, um, was... First Reformed? Did you see that one? I love First Reformed. Um. Yeah. First Reformed was one of the 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 one of my favorite movies of of the last few years. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty incredible uh, movie. Uh, it, Did you see that it, one, Chris? It, you, you should see it. You should check it out. You'd like it. Yeah. It's, Ethan it's Hawke. I love Schrader's yeah, I, struggles with religion, and it, it, you yeah, know, like it's yeah. it's so fascinating. It's like get over it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like get well, over Ethan it, dude. Ethan Hawke was so great in that he should have been nominated. Yeah, uh, I think Schrader was nominated for best original screenplay. screenplay I, think I think so too, but, probably. Yeah, but it just it just Ethan Hawke is just phenomenal in it and the storyline. And what I love about Schrader stuff is that there are no spoilers. You know how the movie's going to end. Like I just saw the card counter with uh, um, Oscar Isaac. Yeah, yeah. And he and Willem Dafoe have a meeting. And you know how it's going to end. You know, it's the same as the ending of Taxi Driver or, you know, the way Mishima, the way all the climaxes happen at once. It's like the structure, he is just always has the same structure and just playing out these themes. And I'm just, I'm a complete Incredible violence and then the end. (laughs) What's interesting though, Will, and, and is like knowing that. So again, I'd never seen hardcore. And this is one of those things that I was, I was just like your choice pleasantly surprised with mm-hmm. because i know schrader and i know where his shit goes and it always goes into this like oh god and, like and this time i mean it while, while there's violence in the film and specifically mm-hmm. at the at the end of the movie it's not it doesn't go into this dark and it's dark but it doesn't go into this dark place of just like complete well there's hope there's hope yeah yeah so it's at the end of taxi driver uh, okay jodie foster goes back to her family yeah. and like that but travis bickle is still out there yeah he's still out there yeah you know and you know the thing go ahead well i was gonna say real quick but you know with taxi driver there's that theory that that travis is actually dead and that's his fantasy mm-hmm. at the at the end of the movie you know uh and I've argued this with people. I'm like, no, that's, it's not a fantasy. <laughs> One of the ways I know this is, as you might know this, but, but some years back, Scorsese and De Niro and Trader got together to hash out a sequel to taxi driver. And they just couldn't make it work. They didn't know that's how right. to do it. But like to them, Travis Pickle was still out there. Yeah. And, and that's all you need to know. You know, yeah. like if they're yeah. saying that that's the case, then that's the case. Well, you know, exactly. some people go through and most people say it, it, it's, crime it's drama they'll say that about hardcore they'll say that about taxi driver right. you know, vincent price always said taxi driver is the scariest horror movie that i've ever seen because there are people like that out there and actually yeah. i kind of feel the same way too because i mean i'm a father to two daughters and really i kind of looked at this as a horror film i mean this movie in the truest essence of the word was horrifying for me because I Absolutely. view this completely different. I mean, I've seen this movie before, and it's been quite a few years, but the last time I watched it, I wasn't a dad. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm mm. watching this movie, and I am a dad, and it it's scary in a whole different way. Mm-hmm. In a whole different way. So, you know, and 
Brandon and I kind of talked about this before. I think, you know, the winning, the ending is a little bit, you know, weak and everything. Yeah. It, There's like, if there was an epilogue, I think that that might have kind of, you know, stuck the landing for me, but it still doesn't take away, I think, from the power of the film. I'm with you. Well, like, I don't think, like, the, the only criticism I have to the movie is that, that yeah, that the, the denouement at the end is kind of like, un, in a way, unearned. It, like, yeah, can, can we talk about it? Can we say yeah, the, sure. the, 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 the it's our show? We can do whatever the fuck yeah, we, we want. We can do whatever the fuck the, we want. The idea, <laughs> but but if you don't want to know what happens at the end, skip ahead probably you know an hour. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh Jesus! No, I I but like the idea is that uh, I'll, I'll keep it short. So it it doesn't feel she reveals to him at the end that like no, I left because I wanted to because fuck you, you you're not a good father. And we never see a single scene that shows that that's the case with him. Right. And that's the only flaw to me in the movie that the, that hits. Like, the very beginning when they're showing them all, you know... Well, there's no Chekhov's gun for this particular moment. That's right. You, know? you, no, you got to show it earlier yeah. so you can use it later. And there's I think not it's really needed. Like, it's, we see him carving a turkey and a bunch of children giggling because they think he's great. They love yeah. him. He's the one... Like, the angry uncle turns off the... Christmas special, and he's the one that's like, "Oh, it's fucking Christmas!" You know, like it's Christmas. Come on, let him watch it. Yeah, like as far he he loves his daughter. He loves his daughter's friend. Like he's nice to everybody. So I just didn't. That's the one thing that didn't connect to me. And also, that actress that plays the daughter is terrible. She's just she's a terrible actress. Yeah, but the only reason they cast her is because she looks good getting reamed by two guys. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, (laughs) that's my daughter. Um, never says that. That's my that sister. It, that's my. <laughs> um, okay, so it's. Hey, Will, did you ever read uh, Easy Riders Raging Bulls? Oh yeah, I read it when it came out. It's. It, it, that's one of my favorite books ever. I was working in a bookstore when it came out, and there was only one other employee uh, at the bookstore that was interested in you know uh-huh. in the seventies movies, and she had tried to make it in Hollywood. Uh, and um, uh, it didn't work, and she moved back to North Carolina, but she tried to make it. And at one point, she was living in an apartment, and Oliver Stone lived nearby. And she was like, and I was like, did you see him? She's like, yeah, you would see him. Like, all his lights would be on all night long, and you would just see him pacing back and forth, you know, you, you know, on the phone or at his desk or whatever. Every once in a while, white clouds yeah, that right, would just emit yeah, from yeah. the windows. Every once in a while, yeah. bending over and doing some kind yeah. of like snorting thing mm-hmm. and then coming back up. <laughs> his face is just yeah. covered, just in, covered white. in white powder. <laughs> yeah. So right yeah, in Conan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's probably the era. Um, but yeah, the Easy Riders Raging Bulls. Yeah, I love. Uh, uh, oh my god, to be at, like you know it, one of those parties, like you said. No, like I love that stuff. It's same here, right? Like so, but you know, there's it's some the wild fucking west. But there's some great Schrader yeah. stories in there. You know, like that yeah, book has absolutely. some really great. Have you ever read that book, Chris? No, oh my god, I'm gonna book. give it to you. You need to read it. It like it's. You know how much of it is bullshit? How much of it's just I gossip? I don't even care. Yeah, it's I don't so either. Gossipy. It's, it's so gossipy. <laughs> now, let me ask you this: Will have you ever read "You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again" by Julia Phillips? Yeah. Yep. I just finished yeah. that one, and yeah. she, Julia Phillips is the producer of Taxi Driver, mm-hmm. and also Close, Close Encounters, Encounters, and that's pretty much it. You know, like she got blacklisted from Hollywood, as she says, because black bald Be- yeah because she because men are awful but she was yeah. uh by all accounts a, a nutcase drug yeah. addict 
Yeah. <laughs> Un- unstable. But like um she has some pretty great Spielberg and Schrader stories, but right. Schrader's just such a fascinating um you know, conflicting conflicted human being filmmaker. Yeah. Dork, you know, mm-hmm. like he used to dress up in like camo and like those heavy boots and you know, like Yeah, well, all the yeah, all the clothes that Robert De Niro wears in Taxi Driver are Paul Schrader's actual clothes. Right. Yeah. So yeah, all, all, all that, all those little trivia details about about those guys and, and Trader writing with with a gun on his desk. On, you on know, his, now wait, just, do you remember the story? That's that, why Milius produced it. You know, oh of course, <laughs> yeah. Do you remember the story yeah. that what Natasha Kinski said about him? What uh, what was what's the thing? She said something like, "I sleep with all my directors, but he was the one that I had the hardest time, the hardest time with." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's pretty funny. He's pretty active on on Facebook. Is actually. he? Yeah, all the time. Oh, we should see if he'll be on the show. Oh, there we go. <laughs> I never ran into Paul Schrader. That would have been a, an interesting thing. I was too young to really give a shit at the time when I lived in L.A., so <laughs> I wouldn't have had much to talk to him about. Like, you didn't make Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> you made Exorcist 4 Part 2. <laughs> <laughs> what There's else, that story about how he... He uh, came up with the idea for Close Encounters for for Spielberg and like wrote the first like treatment or something and and, and um, I don't know if it was treat, treatment or first sixty pages or something and his character was having those same spiritual conflicts as all his characters do and and he says to Spielberg like yeah this this is a guy who who is a UFO skeptic and you know trying to find the truth and doesn't but doesn't believe it and then suddenly you know he's like saw on the road to damascus you know uh, uh and totally changes into paul and ha- it, it has his you know eyes open and and spielberg is like who's paul who's saint paul who is saul what is <laughs> what are you talking about he's like my guy the guy i want is the guy it's the guy that it's, it's straighter goes straighter goes i don't want my guy to be the first guy to make connection to extraterrestrials to be a guy who eats all his meals at McDonald's. And Spielberg is like, that's exactly who I want. Like I want a regular dude. And that's why they, they split, split up. And that's why the Schrader was like, I can't write that character. Right. I don't know about that character. Right. Fascinating. Right. Like I love yeah. that man. That, we, there should have been a lot more Hollywood gossip in this, in this episode. Since yeah. we're talking about Hollywood gossip here. <laughs> yeah. There's some hot goss in Hollywood. <laughs> Okay, um, Chris. What else about hardcore? Anything else? Well, I mean, from the exploitation factor, you've got lots of nudity in this movie, and you've got violence that takes place in there, sexual violence that takes place. You've got wonderful shots of tenderloin in San Francisco and everything. <laughs> you know? Which I mean, that kind of led to my whole thing. Whatever happened to the red light districts? You know? Oh my well, God, Chris! There's that awesome scene where George C. Scott beats the shit out of robot jocks on the streets of San Francisco yeah. and they're like f- tumbling down the slanted street hanging out at the matador. <laughs> I loved it. I was like, that is such a great idea. Cause like the streets are just, you know, and it's total like sunny Corleone style too, where he's just right. beating his ass and he's trying to get <laughs> away. Rolling him, and the guy's like rolling down <laughs> Trash cans. And, and then he's like running down the steps, followed right behind. And then there's people actually standing there just kind of watching it going, damn, he's beating that guy's ass. <laughs> I love that. But I think actually getting up to that point with the Matadors, something else that I kind of noticed too is that Mark Alimo is the, uh, is Rattan, you know, the snuff mm-hmm. movie guy. Mm-hmm. And he was... Rattan. Yeah, Rattan. <laughs> well, I don't know nothing about fucking furniture, man. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, what do you want me to tell you? It'll be popular in around 2022, and it's going to cost a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, but more Star Trek stuff, too, because uh, Mark Alima went on to play Goldicott on DS9. Oh, and shit. And he was also in, um, what was it? Uh, Total Recall. I was oh, in Total Recall. Wow. Nerd. Yeah, total nerd. <laughs> so I love that we can say that on, on this show, and <laughs> like... Yeah, who is it? <laughs> what are we talking about here? Okay, ogre. That's my pie. <laughs> what else, Chris? Uh, I think everybody should see this movie. I do too. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it, it, like I, when we were making the joke about how his was the chocolate and the graham cracker and that yours was the, the marshmallow, I'm serious. You know, this is actually a little bit of spice that's kind of thrown on it. And Absolutely. It, you know, it does, it makes you, it makes you think long and hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. Pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say out of all of the, the the movies of the three movies, Hardcore is probably the best film. I like that's my my opinion is like it's the best film of the three. Hollywood Boulevard's probably <laughs> the only. <laughs> and then Nashville Girl is the most genuine, s- sweet, and sincere. So, right. um, you guys, we this is actually I think we say this a lot of times, but. This is one of the hardest. We say this every time. Yeah. This is one of the most difficult choices as to what are we going to do for a double feature. The the thing is, is we don't get to pick it. No, we don't get to pick it. This is up to you, Will, <laughs> to decide. Yeah. Um, so based upon made, uh, the, uh, the, the the points that we've made. The, the evidence that has had, been brought to the. The arguments that we've, uh, we've, we've put forth and everything. What do you think would actually make probably the best double feature? Of these three films, I mean, I, I I just think that hardcore is just too spicy to go with Nashville Girl. Um, even as a Trader fanboy, I, I it's I feel like it, like I'm like, would you show Nashville Girl first? Would you show it second? I feel like showing hardcore first it, too much of a downer, but then showing it after Nashville Girl. It would again. It would. It would sort of erase any any good feelings you had about it. So I think I might have to. Well, go wait, wait, before the, you, before you, yeah. can I just throw something out? Into uh, yeah. this is like anti my thing. Like in defense of hardcore, I just want to throw this out there. Like the way I'm picturing it is so Nashville girls. The the one we everybody comes to see Nashville mm-hmm. girl. Right, it's still kind of early mm-hmm. in the night. So okay, that the, but this still could go both ways here because you go. So now our midnight movie is going to be a little more, it could go either rowdy and raucous or it could go a little like darker and moody. So it, right. it, it, it just depends on what kind of a, a mood you want to put. So that's the only thing I'm going to say in defense of Chris's choice yeah. Uh, yeah. on that, in that regard. So, okay. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt you. Well, I don't, yeah. I don't know how much that did anything, but there it's you go. It's the director in him. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, see, that's just it. Is I, I like this idea of Hollywood Boulevard as a as a midnight movie, and the sort of the raucousness, and uh, you sort of lead in with Nashville Girl, and then and I think that that would be, I think it would be the Hollywood uh, Boulevard. I think. Okay, well there we Honestly, have it. Honestly, I'm going to agree with you on that one. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I I I picked this movie because it was like it just popped in there. You know, that was the thing that popped in my head. Um. You know, there's a lot of similarities, I think, between Hardcore and Nashville Girl. Um, I think Nashville Girl is a much more hopeful film. 
Sure. Um, also, perspective shift, right? So yeah. if, if Nashville Girl is told from the perspective of the girl, we don't right. ever get to see, you know, her dad who was abusive to her at the beginning of the movie. We don't see him follow her to Nashville to find her. So, you know, hardcore works as the, you know, the, that other version of like, it works as almost as a sequel or like a parallel sequel. Yeah, know? thematically they're linked. Rashomon. That, and that's interesting. There you go. Ra- yes, it's like Rashomon version. Right. Yes, yep. dude. But but yeah, Hollywood Boulevard is like the the frothy yeah. you know, mess. So yeah. there's egg white in there? There's probably a lot of egg white in that movie. <laughs> um I would love to I really would love to make this a triple feature and like at I think that would be the best s'more, drive-in s'more I can think of. You know, yeah, like a, I, a s'more that yeah, you have it, at a Hollywood party in the hills with Robbie the Robot. <laughs> That's right. But unfortunately, the drive-in gods require that we only pick two films. So three films enter, two films leave. So, all right, that's it, Will, right? We're saying uh, yeah, Nashville Girl and Hollywood Boulevard and Hardcore... Yes. Oh, we hardly knew you, but <laughs> but we love you. <laughs> we love you, hardcore. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, well, what's up, man? What's going on with you? What's what's coming up? What's down the pipeline? Um, uh, still, uh, so I'm still working with Valencourt and Grady Hendrix. Uh, coming up with uh, potential book titles to reprint. Um, that's always that's always a, a work in progress. Um, we just want to keep this going. We're, we're, you know, Valancourt is always trying to talk to different writers and, uh, you know, find out their states and copyright and can we get this stuff? We've got a couple more coming out. Um, I think later this year, well, Carnosaur will be coming out. Will you sign um, a copy of Carnosaur for me? Sure. Did yeah. you wait? Didn't I, you I write the you wrote the forward for it or the afterward? I wrote the intro. Now, Carnosaur is not going to be part of the Paperback from Hell series. Oh, that's right. The, the thing I've learned, like working with Valancourt is it probably didn't surprise people, but publishing rights are a total nightmare, complete nightmare. So they get the rights. They can't print it in a mass market paperback. They can only print it as a trade paperback. Hmm. I mean, you know, what do I know? I, you know, I just, I just write the intros. Well, I but, asked uh, you so this fun. though early. Do you remember? I, I don't know if you do, but like I, I, there was another thing I, I messaged you about like a long time ago where I was like, I'm not sure I understand. Like, why are we not, why isn't there like some indie press out there who's just going, fuck it. We're just going to print these little books yeah. and, and put them like, why is that not happening? I don't know. Um, because I know that some of these people and some of these publishers are all dead and gone. And I feel like you, you could do that. So I, I kind of don't know why there's not, um, you know, it could be, you know, sort of a renegade published indie publisher doing it on their own. I know that when we published paperbacks from hell and we had some, uh, uh, artwork in there from the book covers that, uh, we couldn't find a copywriter or an artist and they got in touch with Grady and they weren't mad. They were just, they were just like, Oh, Hey, that's my art. And Grady's like, you want some money? And they're like, okay. And he, like cuts him a check for, you know, like, I don't know, hundred bucks. I mean, it was like, it was like no, nothing. Everybody was so happy to have their stuff back out there. Yeah. Nobody came around and was like, I own this copyright. How dare you? Right. Nobody did that. People are psyched that that we remember these books. Oh my god, we got to do like we. I'm saying we. You got to do a a, a a reprint of the Gilgul with that. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I never the, said that, like that that's crazy, my favorite cover, by the way. <laughs> that crazy monster bride model. Yeah, I'm it's pretty sure the guy that sculpted her is like just outside of Tampa. Oh yeah, Jim Thiessen, I think his I, name yeah, is. Yeah, I think he's like in Sarasota. I could be okay. I I, I want to like go visit him and then befriend him and see if he still has that model and just let me oh have it. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'll go to a good place, dude. I'm never going to sell it. It'll just sit in my house. <laughs> well, that's cool, man. I'm glad you're still doing that stuff. Um, Absolutely. Well, you do for books kind of like what we're trying to do for movies, you know, allowing people mm-hmm. to kind of get a taste of these things that are out here, these little gems that right. people forget about. And I mean, that's absolutely it. You know, so hopefully if, if there's things that you can't really find, I mean, we were so lucky that all three of these movies were in one place that we could go through and actually watch them because that's the weird world. Now that we've kind of moved outside of physical media and into Mm -hmm. this whole streaming world where we go back to this whole gatekeeper kind of thing and people are such dicks about releasing shit. So yeah, let's get it out there. Watch some movies, read some books. To yourself a favor. Reading is fun. <laughs> Reading is fundamental. <laughs> well, thanks, man. This was awesome. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate you uh, asking me. Yeah, this was great. I'm glad you liked Nashville Girl. Loved it. I hope some people watch yeah. it. And, uh, great movie. Yeah, really appreciate it. Well, that wraps up another episode of Dead City Drive-In. Um, once again, I'd like to thank our guest, Will Erickson. And once again... I'm Brandon Windish. And I'm Chris Holcomb. And remember, at this drive-in, if the cars are rocking, it doesn't necessarily mean somebody's fucking. Or trucking. Or trucking. <laughs> They're probably getting murdered. <laughs> like Mando Cody! <laughs> <laughs> Want to have words with the management? Email us at deadcitydrivein at gmail.com and your questions might be featured on a future episode. And hey, why not rate and review Dead City Drive-In on Apple Podcasts? It'll help us grow the show, keep the admission free, and splatter just the right amount of slime and sleaze onto our mutant-friendly drive-in screen. Under 17, not admitted without parent.